today why humility is such an important feature of Christian faith. From Psalm 70. Welcome to Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. As I've been working through the Psalms, I have, I, I'm stunned, actually, that I have arrived at the 70th Psalm, uh, and I am equally stunned by how many different parts of my faith were um, lacking because I didn't work through these earlier. And But, I mean, I, I say that, but it's always true. As you study Scripture, your faith always matures. Uh, but I'm really glad to be getting the reshaping uh, of my faith that's coming from working through the Psalms. And today's, I think, is particularly impactful. It has been on me, uh, and hopefully it will be helpful to you as well. And it's a short psalm, uh, only really five verses as we have it in English. And again, the only reason for the difference is that in the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, a lot of times the superscript counts as a verse by itself, and so it's six verses in Hebrew, but no difference in the meaning of the psalm. You say, well, then why did you bring it up? Because I find it fascinating and worth saying 70 times. Anyway, um, so today's psalm, though, is so uh, so poignant uh, in contrast to the way we normally read the psalms and use the psalms and the way I think we would use this one if we were to do that. And this is not a new thing. I mean, the very first time when we started going through the Psalms together uh, in this podcast, when I started doing episodes of the Psalms every third, fourth, fifth uh, episode or so, uh, I made the point that, that it's a mistake when we come into the Psalms reading ourselves as the hero of every Psalm. Uh, oh, the enemies are oppressing me, so I'll convert this Psalm into a prayer for my needs. Uh, and I get it. I understand why we do it, and I understand why it feels so appropriate to do that, but it misses one of the most important elements of the Psalms, and that is that we're reading them as a gift from our Messiah to us of what we're able to sing only because he has sung it for us, because he has given us these words. And that's why the fact that so many of these are Psalms of David is so important. So as we read through this psalm, Psalm 70, in five verses, uh, I think it's important all to notice first in the superscript the statement to the choir master of David. So this is a psalm from David for all of us to have available to us. It's to the choir master for that reason. For, and then in the ESV it says the memorial offering, which is appropriate. I'm not, I wouldn't criticize any of these. The translators all know more Hebrew than I do, so more power to them. Uh, but there is a little contesting to be done over whether to take it as a memorial offering. Well, look, I'll say it this way. The way we use the word memorial uh, in our culture, and I would say just in English, but it's not about the language, it's just about our culture. 
uh, we would think, oh, well, this would be a good psalm for a funeral uh, because that's a memorial to us. When we have some memorial gift, it's when someone has died, and we therefore want to remember them by doing something. We'll have a special service, or we will acknowledge their passing with a gift to a school, for instance, Criswell College, or, you know, not to plant a, you know, just a, a slight idea. Anyway, the point is, we use memorial as a token of remembrance for those who have passed on before us. And I don't think that's what's going on with the word memorial here. It is about a memory. It is about remembering, but I don't think it's about us remembering. I think it's about the Lord remembering. And and this is not revolutionary on my part. There are translations that make it obvious that this is what's going on. And in context, it is fairly obvious that this is what's going on. Uh, This psalm matches other psalms that use that same language. It's a psalm for remembering or for a memorial. And these are psalms like Psalm 38 where, where David is saying to God, will you remember what we're going through? And in this psalm in particular, these these just five verses, that's what he's pleading for. He's begging for God to pay attention to what he's going through, for God to remember that he is his servant and that he's down here facing these enemies and that he needs help. He needs for God to intervene. And I know we might have a high-minded, supercilious tendency to say, well, how dare David question whether God would remember? But then we'd have to read the whole Old Testament and say, what an insulting book, because a huge portion of the Old Testament is about God's people saying to God, have you forgotten us? Do you remember us? And so the opening line, the superscript of this psalm, which is it is different from the rest of the psalm, whether it's numbered in the Hebrew scriptures or not, it's different because it's not part of what you're singing to God. It introduces what you're singing to God, though, and it gives context to that so that in the congregation, we could say, we have a particular need to draw God's attention to something we don't think he's paying attention to. It doesn't feel like he's paying attention to it. So let's pick one of these psalms about God remembering, and let's ask him to remember, and it gives us the words that we could sing to him. So I would actually put, and I and I've, I have divided the psalm into three parts. One of those parts, though, is just the opening and closing of the psalm where David is simply saying, God, hasten to help. Give me some deliverance here. And I think that's what's happening. Even in the superscript, this is a psalm for us to be able to go to God and ask for help. And remember, and I've said this to you before, and I borrow this language from Winston, who borrowed Winston Hotman, a friend and a former co-worker. Well, he still co-works with us, but just not as much, uh, who borrowed the language undoubtedly from someone else, that the Psalms are first and most fully true about the Messiah. That's where they begin. That's why they're Psalms from David. But because we're in the Messiah, we're invited into the content of the Psalm. And that's what gives sense to some of the language in the Psalms that would never be true about us, reward us for our own righteousness, but are true about us because of our Messiah. Not even David, but the Messiah, you know, Christ that we have in the perfect uh, fulfillment that he brings to the world. So anyway, uh, in the first part of the Psalm then, what what we're going to read is the Messiah asking for the Father to intervene on his behalf 
But to intervene on the Messiah's behalf is to intervene on behalf of God's people. So that's what we'll come to understand in this psalm. So first, let's read it. To the choir master of David for the memorial offering. And then verses 1 and the last half of verse 5, I think just go together inherently because they, they say basically the same thing. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. And at the very end, hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. It's clear that that message is going to go together. So we'll put them together in the way I divide up the psalm because that's the ultimate message, what's sandwiching everything else in. But as we read it continuously, it goes like this. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, aha, aha. That's such a weird expression, but I'll come back and and talk about it. I think it'll make more sense. Then in verse four, he goes on to say, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your wisdom say evermore, God is great, but I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer, O Lord. Do not delay. So as we're, as we're coming into the psalm then, you can, and you can hear kind of how it goes, there's him pleading for God to hasten to his help, and then he gives content to what that help would look like in saying, do this to the people who are oppressing me, who are doing something to me. And then at the end, he talks about himself. Uh, So all those who are seeking you, may they be able to rejoice. And he's describing it about himself and his people together. So that's how we'll take it. Verses one and five, I think, go together, at least the end of verse five, to make one section. And then verses two and three go together. And then verses four and five go together. And that should give us the whole content of the psalm that we're trying to cover. So starting with the first section, First, because it's a psalm to remember. So God, please remember us. And that's emphasized in David saying, make haste, O God, to help, to deliver me. And then Yahweh, make haste to help me. And it's actually just the make haste is one time, but it's emphatic, so they translate it into both phrases. Uh, It's just God, deliver me. God, Yahweh, help me and do it now. Do it in do it in this moment. Do not delay any longer. When we're reading, and by the way, in the, at the end of the psalm, he, said, he does the same thing in verse five at the end. Hasten to me, O God, you are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, please stop delaying. Do not delay anymore. So when we read that, and if we just immediately devotionalize it, the reason we insult the psalm in some ways and we miss the point of the psalm is because we think, oh, well, I have a need. I've got an urgent need coming up. God, hurry, come and deliver me. And that's fine. I mean, that's that's a reasonable prayer, and it's a good prayer. We are supposed to bring our burdens before God. There's no no reluctance there. It's not like God doesn't know what you're going to be thinking when you're praying, and you can suppress it all you want, and he's still going to know you're thinking it. So I'm not saying don't bring your own personal needs before God, but I'm saying reading this psalm, as if David saying, make haste, O God, to deliver me, is my language when I'm thinking, oh, I've got to make a car payment I can't afford, or you know, I'm not able to finish this paper for the school that I'm attending, or I'm not going to be able to make it to, you know, I'm not going to be able to save my job, or whatever it is that's on a person's mind. 
all of which are important and need to be dealt with. This is so much more than that. And it is part of our failure in Christianity, our personalizing of Christianity. And and believe me, I'm not mitigating in any form or fashion or minimizing the significance of the personal nature of our relationship with God when we're in Christ. He mediates a relationship with God Almighty for every individual who's in him. So absolutely valuable is that reality. But we miss so much of the meaning in Scripture when we just personalize a statement like this and don't recognize how ubiquitous it is. In all of Scripture, this prayer, make haste to deliver me, is not just somebody's hunting me down and my throat's about to be cut. This is the people of God praying throughout the Old Testament, God, stop delaying. Stop waiting. I mean, we feel pressured or burdened uh, because traffic is bad in a given moment. These are people who are talking about a burden of having been displaced from their own land by one oppressing people after another for generations, no, for millennia. We're talking about people whose families are slaughtered before their eyes. We're talking about people who are still under oppressive regimes. And you can say to yourself, well, this is David. He won all of his battles. He was always warring. He was always warring because even in establishing this amazing kingdom that Solomon would inherit and make even more amazing, he's still constantly being run out of his own throne room by the very people he's trying to serve. We've told that story with Absalom before. It's not just Absalom. He's chased by Saul after he wins an unbelievable battle against Goliath for Saul. There's no end to the struggles that David faces in his life, and it's not about David. David gave his life to be about the people that God wanted him to serve. Was he perfect? Absolutely not. But when he failed was when he was just taking things to himself in contrast to what God said a king in Israel should be like. He shouldn't be taking wives. He shouldn't be amassing horses and so on like that. The reality is David's prayers are meaningful when he's offering them the way we ought to understand them on behalf of all of the people of God and throughout all of their history, the prayer of the people of God. And this is from the beginning to the end, is how long, O Lord? How long until you remember us? How long until you handle these crises that have come up from the beginning of time? How long until you avenge us of our enemies? Let me, let me give you a, a few examples to put this in context, because again, if we don't read it in this context, we'll simply think make haste means take the knife away from my throat instead of take the evil out of the world, end all of this suffering. So in Psalm 13, for instance, and I'll give you one that's before, a couple that are after, and then something that's not in the Psalms at all, just so you can get a feel for how constantly present this prayer is. In Psalm 13, how long? It begins this way, how long, O Lord? And then in the context of a remembering, a memorial, how long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? 
How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel inside of my own soul and have sorrow in my own heart all day long? How long will my enemy, to put it back in a context exactly like this psalm, be exalted over me? That how long is the plea of Israel throughout all of their history? And we've talked about it before in Luke 18, that when the scribes, the Pharisees, are coming to Jesus and challenging him on the kingdom of God, coming or not coming, that Jesus' response is to say to them, you know, what's lacking here is not the kingdom of God. What's lacking here is your faithfulness, which he puts in this language. Do not stop praying even when your faith hasn't been realized in this world for generations or for thousands of years, do not faint in your prayers. Continue to ask because all God wants to find in us is a faith in him that says, I'll keep praying, I'll keep asking, even when one life after another, we don't see the answer. When will this evil end? When will this suffering end? And so in Psalm 13, they're expressing that. How long, Lord? Will you forget us forever? Remember us now. That's the plea. In Psalm 79, nine psalms after the one we're in today. How long, O Lord? This is in verse five of that psalm. Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn against us like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations who do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. Because watch what they're doing, Lord. They have devoured your people, Jacob, and they have laid waste his habitation. That is, they've destroyed our home place. They've destroyed the land you promised and gave to us. They have removed us from your blessings. And yet, you're not doing anything. Would you please remember us? These are the prayers of the Old Testament. Ten chapters later, Psalm 89, in the psalm about the Davidic covenant, right? This is the one you usually go to and say, oh, you can see the Davidic covenant in here. How long, O Lord, he says, David says, how long, O Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. And that contrast is hugely important. That all of, we know our lives are brief. So here we come into the world. We live our entire lives waiting to see God fulfill his ultimate promise to remove evil and suffering from anywhere in the world. And generation after generation after generation, we go through our entire lives like Zechariah in the, in, in the New Testament, you know, John the Baptist's father. We go through our entire lives waiting to see the fulfillment of your promise, and we still say, why is there still suffering in the world, Lord? How long is it going to take? I know, again, I know you're getting uncomfortable. We say, oh, we we, we shouldn't question God like that. That is the scriptural message. This is what the Bible teaches us, and it's, it's debilitating to our faith when we pretend that's not the center of our faith. We have a faith of longing. We have a faith of desire for something that will be, for a resurrection that will be, not for something we've received already. I know we've received Christ. We have the kingdom dwelling within us. But within that, we have this command not to turn from the prayer 
for God to realize these things fully in the world. In fact, it's so present going forward, like in the New Testament, that even when you get to the end of the New Testament, to the book of the Revelation, and however you read the book of the Revelation, it is about people after the resurrection. It is about the people who are living in Christ after his ascension. Revelation 6 says this about the fifth seal. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. These are people who, they lived their entire lives, they served God and died because of it, following their Messiah, by the way, doing exactly what he did. They can't, you know, they're not winners. It's These are the people, some, you know, some proud, arrogant person would say, well, they lost because they died. I mean, just the fact that they died is evident they lost, right? We've heard that lately. They cried out. This is what they did. They have died for their faith, and they cried out with a loud voice. And this is under the altar, in the future, anticipating the day of the resurrection. They say, oh, sovereign Lord, you have all this power, holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long until you make things right on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe. Here, you do have a reward for your faithfulness. And they were told, though, to wait, rest a little longer until even more people suffer and die until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. This is even in the end we're being told that suffering is going to continue right up until I finally do make things right. Now, he does make things right. He doesn't say, and this shall continue forever. That's a false reading of Scripture. It gives a conclusion to the suffering and evil that's in the world. And that's what we pray for. And because it will be realized, our prayer has real hope behind it. That's the context in which this psalm is being introduced to us. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. And David now standing in for all of Israel because he's giving them a song to sing together as the body, as the people of God. He's giving them a song to sing together, to lift up their voices to God regularly and say, God, stop waiting, please. Bring deliverance now. So the Messiah begs the Father to remember him and therefore to remember his people. And he gives us a way to pray that prayer. And I just want to assert here how important it is that we figure out that the prayers we're offering are not simply personalized, individualized requests for God to intervene on our behalf in contrast to all of those people around us. You know, the old Jim Carrey movie, wasn't it? Uh, with uh, Where he becomes God for a day or for a week or whatever it is. You know, in that movie, part of, the, part of the contradiction that's built into him thinking, oh, I can just do all this better than God, you know, the joke in the movie. Part of the contradiction that's built into that is the contradiction that's built into everyone's requests. I want it to rain on my garden. Don't make it rain today because I want to go to the amusement park. You know, all of those contrasts that are built in are about the, con- the, you know, the contest between individuals for the things that they want. So we can't resolve, how on earth can God answer all of these prayers? That's not the problem with God answering these prayers. 
It's not a conundrum to take into, into account all of the contradictions between the interests of individuals. It's the contest between evil and suffering in the world and the will of God for justice to be done, for mercy to be realized. That's the contest, and that's a real contest. And somehow, in the will of God, we're supposed to come to understand why we can be begging God to do what he says he wants to do, and yet for some reason he he hasn't done it yet. There's something still missing. And so in our own lives, we do end up suffering. We do end up with pain. But it needs to be more than just us saying, my car broke down. Oh, God, please rescue me. That's a reasonable prayer when your car breaks down. Nothing wrong with that prayer. But our prayers should mean more than that. Right now, when I think about, as I record this, when I think about Christians, and and I'm just talking brothers and sisters in Christ, those who have faith in the resurrection and believe Jesus is Lord. When I think about Christians suffering in Israel and Palestine right now because of the war going on there, and then I think, I, I wonder how many Christians woke up this morning and felt such a burden such a load for their brothers and sisters who are suffering there that their first prayer was, Lord, how much longer does this kind of suffering have to happen? I've mentioned to you before that when I left, uh, we we went uh, not to Gaza, not to that side of the Palestinian areas, to Palestine, Palestinian territories, but to the Bethlehem side where Palestinians are, there are, there are more Christians in the Palestinian areas, right? I mean, that's where most of the Christians are. They're Palestinian. And so we met with some Christians who were there. And when we left, what they said to me was, please don't forget us. We, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We serve the same Lord you serve. And I know you care about us when you're here, but when people leave, they just forget us. They don't think about us at all. And none of us should be that way about other believers, right? Much less about those who are suffering so much right now. And I could say the same about those who are in Ukraine. I could say the same about those who are living in poverty in other parts of the world. We're supposed to carry one another's burdens. And the fact that we have a blessed week, uh, you know, around Thanksgiving week, for instance, when I'm recording this, or around the holidays, or because we happen to have accomplished something, I got a new job, or look at my new house, or whatever it is, that's going on doesn't change the fact that there's suffering in other places in the world that ought to make this prayer escape our lips every day for the reality that until God makes everything right in the world, we should be desperate for him to intervene. It should go beyond ourselves. Our prayers should go beyond our own skin. So here's first the Messiah doing that, begging the Father to remember him, but putting it in a psalm for all of his people to be able to ask for the Father to intervene immediately. Then the second portion. What is it that the Messiah wants the Father to remember? What is it that he's asking God to recall? And you'll see as we're reading it in verses 2 and 3 that what he's asking God to remember is that people in this world tend to push others down, to crush others, to devour others in order to exalt themselves, in order to promote themselves. So he says in verse two, let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. This is what they're seeking. And in this psalm, there are a couple of 
repetitions, a couple of parallels that are so obvious you can't miss them. One is the haste thing that I was talking about. In verses one and five, we're beginning and ending the psalm by saying, stop delaying, God, haste, hurry, come, deliver us now. That's obvious. And the second one is in a parallel between verses two and four. In verse two, let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. And then in verse four, in contrast, may all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. So bring joy and gladness to those who are seeking you, but bring shame and confusion to those who are seeking to oppress others, who are seeking to oppress your chosen one, in this case, the Messiah. So in verse two, let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life is gonna lay the groundwork for the contrast we're, we're supposed to see, not only between the treatment that God gives to those who are seeking his life, but also to the thing they're trying to do What is it they're trying to do? So let them be brought to shame and confusion. Well, they're pursuing the opposite. They're trying to exalt themselves. They're seeking my life. Why are they seeking my life? Not because of something about my life that they want, but because of what they want from my life. They want my kingdom. They want my power. They want my fame. They want my possessions. They want whatever it is they want to take. This is the pattern of our living in this world. And so he says at the end of that verse, let them be turned back. They're trying to conquer and go forward. Let them be turned back. Let them be brought to dishonor because they're pursuing their own honor. And they're doing that by delighting in my hurt. I'll read the last phrase in verse three in just a moment. But this idea is so important to who we are as human beings in this world that we've redesigned our whole way of seeing the world around a paradigm that says this is the fundamental principle of life, that you compete with others in order for the strongest to move forward. This is the paradigm for our contemporary existence. What I mean by that is the way we measure and evaluate everything we do in this life right now is on that theory. And it doesn't matter whether you agree with the theory or not, the theory of evolution that I'm talking about. It doesn't matter whether you buy into it biologically or not. The reality is we know the world, the way as we know it, the fallen world, is so governed by that struggle to survive, by competition for scarce resources, by the survival of the fittest, and who else would survive but the fittest, that that struggle defines how we evaluate the forward progress of the human race and everything that's going on in our lives. We have an evolutionary paradigm of our existence because the nature of human beings is to compete with each other. I'm gonna win, I'm gonna overcome you, I'm gonna embarrass you, I'm gonna take your stuff, I'm gonna act kind to you so that you'll give me an advantage. And then I'll use that leg up uh, to grow beyond you in some way. It's all devouring others to gain for ourselves. And it's not just in the evolutionary paradigm that we recognize that, I'm saying, The evolutionary paradigm recognizes that truth in the nature of our relationship with each other and as individuals in the world and says, well, that must be what governs everything about life. That's how prominent it is. And so David says, this is the way the world works. Other people are seeking to push my life down so that they can have an advantage. That's what Saul was doing with him. That's what Absalom was doing with him. That's what his enemies are constantly doing with him. And so he says, Lord, you be the one that pushes them down. They're exalting themselves. They're devouring me. Would you take care of them? Would you manage what they're doing? 
And so in verse three, let them turn back because of their shame, who in their pride and their perceived victory are shouting. And then he says, you know, it's this weird, it, it, it's because, you know, we're translating out of Hebrew and trying to figure out what the sound is. It's aha, aha. You know, I mean, when we say aha, it's like, aha, I caught you. <laughs> you know, that kind of, it's weird. That's not the expression here. This is, and, it, and it's sort of like the, what's it called? A uvulation, you know, when in uh, the Middle East, we see people, uh, and, and in some other parts of Asia, you see people celebrating with their tongues, you know, blah, 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 you know, that kind of thing. And we think, well, what a bunch of weirdos. Have you seen us at a football game or celebrating the way we celebrate? We also have these interjections, these, these ways of just letting sounds erupt from our bodies that are celebratory, that are victorious, that are visceral in their nature. That's what this is. They're winning the victory. Yes, ha, I won. It's that kind of celebration. And he's saying, let those people be turned back. If you go back and look at the other Psalms and the other places in scripture like Job, where this expression is given, it's always that kind of, I've gone to the battle and I've turned back the enemy and yes, I'm the winner, that kind of thing. It's that kind of celebration. And so he says, turn that victory, turn that standing on the summit, claiming victory over everything, turn that into their defeat. Because what they've done is destroyed other people in the process of getting that defeat. So what is it the Messiah wants God to remember? That people push others down in order to exalt themselves. And so he says, don't forget us. These people are celebrating because they've trampled over others to get to their victory. Don't forget us, God. And then he goes on in verses four and five and describes the other half of that so that he's saying not just what to do to the enemies, but what it means for us. Now, this is not, this is just something for us to, to gain knowledge of so that we can make sense of the question we ought to be asking in this psalm. And, and, it, and it's just sort of built into the psalm. We have to be asking why on earth do God's people always have to suffer why are they always losing in order to bring glory to God? You know, why is humility this cost of being a follower of God? Is it like God's so insecure? I've heard people make fun of this. Is God so insecure that he needs humbled people, humiliated people, so that they can point the glory to him and he'll finally feel good about himself or something like this? Obviously, we know that's absurd, and it's an absurd cheapening of anthropomorphizing God. But the question remains, why, you know, why is our suffering, why is our humility, even humiliation, the price for God to be exalted? And it's built into why we're asking God to remember us during this time. So the statement in verse four is, may all who seek you so now it's, Lord, do something on behalf of, bless all those who are on the other half. Because the other half, they were seeking our destruction. But we're not seeking their destruction. We're not striking them on the cheek because they struck us on the cheek. We're turning to you and saying, I I I'm not seeking for them to be put down. I'm seeking for you to be exalted. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. I think a brilliant contrast that carries forward this exact idea is the one in Acts chapter four when Luke is telling us about 
how the early, the apostles were put in prison after they had preached, and then they're told by the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem not to preach in Jesus' name anymore, not to do anything like that anymore. And then it says when they put them, they, you know, they hear the message back from them, you know, why are you preaching in this man's name? Didn't we tell you not to do it and so on? When they bring them in, they put them out again so that the council can be by themselves. And it says, and they took counsel with themselves. So when they're trying to accomplish something, the only people they have to appeal to is themselves. So they turn to themselves and look for their help. And then when they send the apostles out telling them not to preach anymore in Jesus' name, what do the apostles do? They go to the church, and then what do they do? Just consult with the church? No, the whole point of the passage is to give a contrast between what those leaders in Jerusalem were doing and what the church did. Because when the apostles came to the church, it says they lifted up their voice together to God and said, would you take up this cause? Are you going to observe what your enemies are doing to your people? And so the the nature of what we're doing as the people of God is coming to him, to seek him and find our answer and rejoicing and gladness in him. And so that's why the declaration at the end of verse four is the statement, not, aha, we win, not that, but may those who love your salvation say forevermore, God is great. Not, I'm great, look at me on the ridge, I've won the battle, but God is great. The contrast is profound. And it's, and it's, and it's the point that we're not exalted, but God is. And that means we have to recognize why our humility or weakness is somehow built into exalting God. And it is built in. I mean, we see it, and anytime we come to expressions like this, I think our minds immediately go to 2 Corinthians, where Paul is talking about the thorn in his flesh, right? And we immediately think of God saying, I'm not going to take that thorn away from you. I know you want to be strong on your own, but my grace is sufficient for you. In fact, my strength is made complete in your weakness. We go immediately to that passage, but it's not just Paul's thorn. Why was Joseph in a pit? Why does Moses strike the rock? Why is he kept out of the promised land? Why is Elijah in despair after he has this experience on Mount Carmel. Why does he have to run in the desert and live, you know, off the subsistence of the land and then a widow for so many years? Why is Job suffering? Why is Stephen stoned? Why is Paul imprisoned? Why is James martyred? And one after another, constantly from the beginning of scripture to the end, God's people suffer. It's written into their story. It's not accidental. It's why David concludes this psalm before getting back to the simple statement, make haste to deliver me. Make haste to provide help, O God. I have nowhere else to turn. What does he say? He says, but I am poor and needy. Yeah, it comes immediately after the statement. God is great. I am poor and needy. That's because for us to rejoice and be glad, it has to be in him. The rest of the world, they're looking to find joy and gladness in their own exaltation. Whose place are they taking? They're not taking our place. They're taking God's place. 
They're finding sufficiency outside of him. And the whole point is that we recognize our dependence on him. People who are seeking their own are seeking to replace their need for help. I say they, like it's not true about us. We do exactly the same thing. And that's what we have to learn not to do. Why is the price for God's glory our humility? Not because God is somehow threatened by our strength or our power, but because his grace really is sufficient for us. And because in a fallen world, the only place people find grace is when they realize they have failed. Otherwise, we depend on ourselves. We rely on ourselves. We celebrate ourselves. We put others down so we can exalt ourselves until we become his. And then people trample over us, and we declare that when we are poor and needy, God is great. The fact that this is built into our Christianity is just so important and so difficult for us to grasp. It, it provokes a bunch of questions that I would want to ask. I'll ask real quickly just to blow through them. But, you know, f- sort of like you became a disciple. What did that cost you? W- what did it cost? Because the point of our discipleship is that we're pointing to the greatness of God, not ourselves. Not what is your discipleship benefiting you. The question is what is your discipleship costing you? More specifically, In what act, in what act of obedience has it actually cost you something to follow God? What act of obedience to God has actually cost you in order to be obedient to him? Has God intervened on your behalf? Is there somewhere you were losing because you were obeying him and God had to intervene on your behalf to deliver you? Or have you found your own solutions for everything? And if I were to put it back into Psalm 70 specifically, it would be with this question. Is your greatest hope in life that your life will be easier? Or is your greatest hope in life that somehow, with what he does to intervene in your life, God will show just how great he really is? I think that's what we're called to. I hope that's what we'll pursue. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.